this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Micro. I'm Drew Hawkins, and this episode is part of an interview series for Miami Book Fair, where members of Team Micro, that's myself, Dylan Evers, Maymay Kaufman, and Kirsten Renault, interview authors appearing at the fair about their work. For more information about their programming and to check out the incredible roster of authors appearing this year, visit MiamiBookFair.com. And be sure to follow them at Miami Book Fair and hashtag Miami Book Fair 2022 for more updates. Now, back to the show. Welcome to Micro. I'm Maymay Kaufman, and today I'm speaking with author Erica T. Worth. We'll be talking about her debut novel, White Horse, out from Flatiron Books next month. To start the show, we've asked her to select and read a passage from the book. So here's Erica T. Worth reading from White Horse. Enjoy. Hi, it's such an honor um, to be here and to be asked to read and interview. I love Lit Hub. I've written for Lit Hub. And so, again, such an honor and thank you so, so much. I'm actually going to read um, a very short section from the absolute beginning. There was something strange, mysterious even, about the white horse tonight. Normally, it was merely an Indian bar, my Indian bar. But there was a milky, dreamy quality to the red lights swinging over the pool tables, like the wind from the open doors was bringing them something new, something I pushed away for as long as I could remember. Debbie, do we have to talk about her again? I took another swig of my beer and slammed it back down, eyeing my cousin as I did. She would never let the subject go, no matter how much I rebuffed her. I sighed, taking in the dank, wet wood smell of the bar, the harsh laughter of the bikers in the booth behind me. The thing is, I found I interrupted her with a brush of my hand. I hoped Nick, the bartender, would come by and ask if I needed a refill, but all I could see was the mirror in front of me, the words Miller High Life emblazoned in gold cursive on the front. Right next to it, a sign read, first fight, last drink, permanent 86. Besides us, the bartender and the bikers, the white horse was empty. It was always empty, but I loved it. I loved the long wooden bar, the cats wandering in and out. The mangy orange one was my favorite. She liked to sit on top of the bar and let me pet her while she closed her cloudy eyes and purred. Debbie shifted her weight on the stool, the plastic crackling as she did, the bar stirring around me like a bad dream. All I'm saying is that you don't know your mom's story. Yeah, okay, Debbie, that's great, I said. 
I signaled Nit when he came out of the bathroom. Two more, I said, hoping he'd remember. A couple of Danae came through the doors, quiet the way they were, and made their way back to the pool table. One of them saw me when he came over to order a beer, and he gave me the friendly, friendly nod, his black hair glistening red in the faint bar light. I nodded back, and that strange feeling I'd had earlier flooded back into me. The thing is, Debbie said, you know how we check in on your dad? I hung my head. Yeah, so? I went over there the other day to do that and some cleaning because I know the nurse is great and everything, but I'd like to see how he is. And I just come home from work and was dropping the kids off. Jesus, Debbie, if you're not going to let it go, spit it out. Okay, okay, she says, starting again. So mom had been pushing me to clear some of the boxes in the attic and like we were going to haul them out and throw them in the dumpster, but mom seemed to want to look through them. And mainly they were full of old toys and papers and rusting appliances, but then we found something. What, I whispered, and that dreamy quality snapped back. Something of your mom's. I was silent. My mother, the woman who had abandoned me when I was only two days old, the woman who my father had been so devastated over he began to take long drives, a bottle of Jack between his legs, the woman who had made it so that I had to care for my dad like a baby instead of the other way around after he'd gotten into an accident that had left his body but taken his mind, Cecilia. Thank you. Oh, that was wonderful. Thank you. I'm so glad you read that particular passage too, because I just, I'm wild about books where a setting becomes a character in itself. And the white horse is obviously, you know, we kind of start and finish there and it's this touchstone throughout the book. So, oh, thank you. <laughs> no, I love the white horse. The white horse is uh, an old Denver Indian bar and it just closed. So the white horse is the actual white horse in Denver. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Is this like a beautiful homage to it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I I love that. I love that. Okay. So I have to ask, um, and apologies to those who are listening, Google the cover of this book, because I have to ask what you think about this cover, because I just loved it the moment I I got it in the mail. And then once I was reading it, I was like, this is such a perfect cover for this book. So I have to know your thoughts on it. Yeah. You know, over the years when I published with small presses, I always wanted to work with another Apache artist named Douglas Miles. And I always wanted female, I always wanted um, indigenous women on the, on the cover. And so I wanted something similar um, with my debut with the big five. And I talked to um, my two editors about this, Zach Wagman and Maxine Charles and Maxine really went to bat for me. um, And she, you know, made sure that there was something that would be intriguing and would look cool and right for the book, but at the same time honored um, what it was that I, I wanted and I even wrote actually a LitHub article about this during the um uh, oh, the cover wow. review. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Um, okay, so one more thing that I loved about the cover is this really intriguing blurb by um, Sylvia Morena Garcia, another author I adore who writes gothic fiction, that described White Horse as perfect new wave horror. And it got me wondering what expectations you wanted to subvert or make your own about the horror genre. Did you always intend on writing a horror or ghost story? Uh, quick aside, Sylvia, it was a dream blurb for me. I um, I think Mexican Gothic gave me the kind of permission to come back because what the answer to that question is, is that I was a tremendously dorky kid. I ate lunch under the display case um, or in the <laughs> library. And all I did was read dragon books or ghost books or elf books or spaceship books. And um I, when I went to my, in fact, actually someone tried to give me a copy of To Kill a Mockingbird once and I was like, where are the dragons? I just didn't even understand. (laughs) 
Um, but when I went to do my doctorate in creative writing and literature, that gets ironed out of you, especially at the time. I think that's changing a bit now. And, and you know, I just turned to realism. Um, and I try to avoid using the term literary because I think literary can apply to any genre, you know, depth of theme, complex characterization. You can do that with cops or with a dying marriage, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so, but what happened was, you know, I read Love Grossman's The Magicians. (gasps) I started watching Doctor Who again and I knew it. It was just over. My dreams began to fill with these worlds. And when it came down to it, horror, Stephen King, um, you know, as a Stephen King kid, that was a way to do all the kind of gritty realism that I loved and pay attention to the darker subject matter that I loved. Um, But then kind of come back to my nerd roots where you have ghosts and demons and, you know, evil Bigfoots. And, you know, I saw my peer Stephen Graham Jones do it. He went from realism to, you know, horror. And I was like, well, it can be done. And I did it. (laughs) Yes. Yes, you did. Um, And I love that you said it because I I really adored your dedication for the book. Um, For those apparently pull it up so beautiful um as soon as I read this dedication I was like oh I'm gonna love this I just knew it um you wrote to the nerds who fell in love with dragons and demons with portals and alternate worlds and who felt that in order to grow up had to put those things aside and who came back oh I thought that I just thought that was beautiful yeah I needed magic we need magic you know whatever that means you know yes absolutely Um, All right. I'm going to jump to one of my later questions because you mentioned Stephen King. So there was a lot in this novel that I was initially totally unfamiliar with. Two big examples being metal music and Stephen King's The Shining, the book and the film. And don't worry, I'm correcting this now. (laughs) I'm currently reading it. (laughs) Um, And yet, despite being unfamiliar, um, never did I feel distanced from the protagonist, Carrie, or the story. I kept thinking the whole time, how did she do this? <laughs> because The Shining actually inserts itself in the plot with Carrie visiting the hotel that inspired it. And again, despite being unfamiliar, never felt alienated as to what it meant to our main character and the action of the story. How did you manage to pull that off? <laughs> you know, I probably have Zach Wagman, the elder editor, um, that makes him sound like he's 90, he's younger than me. Um <laughs> To thank for that because he helped to pull it back when it needed to pull it back in terms of just, you know, your main character, Carrie Wright, who is self-educated, but very smart and knows a lot about Denver history knows a lot about Stephen King and horror, right? And about heavy metal. Um, and I wanted to give her the dignity of being like, hey, I know stuff, but I was just, I was, this sounds very romantic and my life is generally not this romantic, but I was just walking around with Stephen Graham Jones agents, um, BJ Robbins in Paris and because my boyfriend's also a writer, he's a thriller writer, um, and he had been advice, invited to a festival. And he, in one of his books, you know, Stephen, like me, has a PhD, he's a professor. And in one of his books, his character is like this expert in horror film. And so BJ similarly kind of like had to pull it back. But there's a real pleasure, I think, um, in knowing that your character knows stuff. And I think if your character is like, hey, like Carrie is a regular working class native who actually is really, really smart and self-educated, um, you kind of you're you're you want to buy that more from that character than you would from a character who's like snotty and like I know everything and here's my gigantic treatise. So um, so yeah. Yeah, so I also just have to say thank you for turning me on to The Shining because I'm reading it now and I love I love thinking about your book 
while I'm reading it. <laughs> I, you know, I wanted to see it as a merit text without again, like, you know, just going on about it. But it's so funny because I, I just, that book is, I, I reread it recently and it's such a weird, great book. And it's funny how Kubrick's The Shining is so, I get all the decisions he made, right? Um, but of course, King was like, I don't get all the decisions he made. No, I'm going to do my own movie. And so I enjoy actually just imagining film is different from the book. That's okay. You know, they're both great. Two different mediums. Absolutely. All right. So I am very curious, what expectations um, did you want to either subvert, correct, or highlight in this book about Native American literature and or the modern Native American experience? Yeah, I think every, there are Native authors who really are comfortable in that position of like, here is my treatise. Um, I'm not comfortable in that position. I am a writer. And I remember a number of years ago, someone referred to me as an activist. And I'm like, there are people who literally lost their arms at Standing Rock. So let, let's not, that just makes me so uncomfortable. Um, however, I do deeply care um, about, you know, helping other writers and helping um, especially Indigenous writers. And that is my, my activism, if you will. Um, but I do think the thing that you can do is if you learn how to write and you learn how to do complex characterization and structure and depth of theme, and you learn all the things you need to learn, what you can do is you can bring to life the kind of community that you grew up with. And I grew up in a very urban Indian community with Diné and Lakota, some Anishinaabe, lots of Mexican Indians, and I'm, you know, both Mexican Indian and American Indian. Um, and Oki mixes. And so I, you know, if anything, I've always in all of my work wanted to bring to life in an organic way, this, you know, idea that there are urban Indian communities, and we're diverse and complex. And, you know, my family's been urban Indian the whole way through. And I think we we count too. we matter too. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> Um, when I finished this book, I tweeted that spending a week with Carrie was exactly what I needed because I've personally had um, struggles with very painful grief in the past, like many. And in this novel, Carrie struggles with very complicated forms of grief, um, you know, with both her mother, who disappeared when she was a baby and is presumed dead, and also her father, who isn't wholly present mentally because of a horrible accident. Can you talk about how you wanted to explore such complicated grief in this story? Yeah, I mean, Carrie is kind of like me. We're, we're very different personalities. She was more the kind of girl who would beat me up when I was a kid <laughs> rather than like me. Um, and I kind of admire her for it, though, because like the girls who were tough on me, they were trying to prepare me for the world in their way. And I get it. Um, but what what we do have in common is we're both women's women, like Men are cool, non-binary, you know, wh however you identify, like I, I like a person for being a person, but certainly Carrie is sort of, you know, she understands that like supporting other women matters and she, the few people she has in her life matter, but yeah. her father is a very tender place for her because beyond her cousin who half raised her and her mother, her aunt who raised her and um, this, this woman who I guess isn't sort of a curandera, um, in town, her auntie Squeaker, um, her dad yeah. is it. And yeah, I love auntie Squeaker. She was like a kind of sort of based on someone, but not really. And, um, she, so, you know, dad is a very tender place because she, by the time she was seven or eight, she's raising him. She's taking care of him. And so, and mom, all she knows is mom took off. And so she, when she realizes a, 
Um, she can't despise her mother anymore. Then she has to grieve for her. And then B, her father, she has to sort of contend with the choices that he made. And she's not even sure which choices he made, you know, as she's processing. So yeah, that's exactly why it's complicated because grief is complicated. And then on top of it, she, you know, lost someone she was very young. She was very close to, and it's just, it, you know, it was easier to shut down in certain ways and survive, which makes human sense. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and how could I not mention her best friend who had passed too? Because one thing about that particular grief that I found to be so heartbreaking um, and intriguing was the way that she feels guilty over her friend's death and the way that the guilt compounded her grief and it seemed to almost kind of overwhelm her and like she couldn't move forward from it. The women where I come from, like my parents were from very, very poor backgrounds. They became semi-middle class. They probably would have done better, but my dad blew our money. And so I went to school in a very working class environment, like I said, that was um, very urban Indian. And sometimes we'd have money for a vacation and sometimes we'd barely have money um, to get groceries. But the women that I, that went to school with in Idaho Springs, they were tough girls and they, they knew how to survive. They knew how to psychologically survive everything that was around her. And that is Carrie. And I think again, like it makes human sense to be like, I, I will throw the first punch. I will shut down my emotional life as much as I can. I, you know, um, and that's what Carrie does because she is one of those girls and it works until it doesn't. You know, exactly, exactly. Um, finally, oh, I hate to say finally, I could keep talking <laughs> forever. Uh, finally, uh, something we're asking everyone we're talking to this season what were you reading as you wrote White Horse? Maybe I should also say what were you listening to as well, because music, as you mentioned, heavy metal is also significant for this character. So I'd imagine it'd be significant for you. Um, when I was a kid, I listened to indie rock and I listened to, well, not kid, I'm in a teenager. Um, and I listened to hip hop and heavy metals all around me, Metallica, Megadeth. And I was like, it had this kind of like veneer of toxic masculinity, but when it really came down to it and I came back around, I was like, I love this stuff. (laughs) Now that's a lot of what I listened to. And I think it, now I get the rage that I was feeling might've been a little different, but I, it it was, it's such a cathartic and such a, these musicians are, are brilliant musicians. There's no way around that. And I appreciate that more now than ever. In any case, um, I was watching Lovecraft country number one. Um, and I, I mean to read it. I think it's lame not to read it and I will, but what was happening was I had come back to fantasy and then science fiction. And then I was like, I need to read horror and I need to just read everything. So of course I was reading my friend, Stephen Graham Jones, um, I was reading Grady Hendrix. I could pretty much just read Grady Hendrix until like, he could not write enough books for me really. Um, yeah, and he's such I a agree. hilariously nice and quite stylish fella, actually. Yeah. Um, you can tell my mom was born in 1939. Cause I use words like fella. Um, <laughs> and then of course, Sylvia Moreno Garcia, um, who actually recommended Craig Lawrence Gidney, who's kind of just this interesting, weird, queer, black horror writer, um, and I, and I'm going to forget other people, my friend, Shane Hawk, I started to read him. He's a really interesting indigenous writer. And then my boyfriend, he's a thriller writer. I, you know, he's, he's Lakota's book is called winter counts. And, you know, Dave and I, Dave really worked on structure and I needed to work on structure. And he was like, 
you know what, this is the books, these are the books that I'm reading and it was really helpful. So I was reading a ton of like cool new horror writers that I think are in that new wave and they really, and then, you know, thriller writers and lots of people from different backgrounds and it really changed my head. So. Oh, well, it's, it's certainly worked out (laughs) and you'll love Lovecraft Country. I've read that one. Oh, fabulous. I, I did the audible actually. I thought it was, I loved listening to it. I loved listening to it. And the show, just like you were saying with The Shining, I understand that they had to make kind of different decisions. Right, right. But if you love the show, oh, the book is just so much more. <laughs> mm, oh man, I can't wait. Oh, and you know what I was, who else I was reading? Victor LaBelle, man. Ooh, love everything. The Changeling, The Changeling, holy crap. Okay. That was just like a compulsive read. PJ, actually, I keep doing this ring shot by P. Uh, P. DeJelly Clark. I'm probably mispronouncing his name. God, that's brilliant. I was reading that too. You know, so much. There's so much out there now. Oh, I love, I love getting fodder for my own TBR list, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially from people who obviously I know have great taste. Oh, yeah. um, so everyone, be sure to stop by and see Erica T. Worth at Miami Book Fair, November 13th through 20th in beautiful Miami, Florida, and pick up a copy of her debut novel, White Horse, from Flatiron Books, out this November at your favorite bookstore and available now for pre-order on Audible. Erica Worth, thank you so much for stopping by. It's been a total joy to talk to you. Thank you so much. It's been a, just such an honor. <laughs>